Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Christ light is born, of the East is also supported by light of the Eastern East. Christian publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com, and by Eastern Christian for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches at Eastern Christian Publications. Yes, of course, it is also the Nativity of our Lord God in the flesh. But we also use these other very descriptive terms, such as condescension. Think about that for a moment, because that's really the great, great beauty and mystery of this season. Imagine a God, invisible, incomprehensible, infinite, immeasurable. Notice how we speak in negations about God in the Eastern spirituality. There's more that we can say that God is not than what he is. We say both, but there's a lot of emphasis on what he is not, because he's always beyond any analogy or any word. So, God is infinite, invisible, and that infinite, perfect, uncontainable God becomes contained within the womb of a virgin, within human flesh, while remaining the creator, while remaining uncontainable. This is classic mystery, which we love so much as human beings, but especially in the Eastern churches. So as we meditate on this incredible, great mystery, we also meditate on what it does for us. Remember, whenever we read the scriptures, whenever we immerse ourselves in the events of the life of Christ and of his mother, what we're doing is we're immersing ourselves in our experience, our life. The Christ event is our experience. And so we look at the things that surrounded this event, the incarnation, and we look at the persons as well. Before Christmas, what we did in the Byzantine liturgical calendar was, during the first two Sundays, as a matter of fact, before Christmas, we looked at the ancestors of Christ, both through the biblical line and also through his family lineage. We looked at the patriarchs, those through whom the covenant came, and also the very lineage of Christ. And there was his entire family going all the way back to Adam and all the way to Joseph, his foster father. And the reason we did this was to show how God worked through, he incarnated himself already as he was unfolding his plan of salvation. He incarnated himself already through the people that came before Christ, 
Christ's own lineage and the persons in the Old Testament that came before Christ, that foreshadowed him, through whom the covenant was made between God and his people. And in doing that, what we're showing and immersing ourselves in is the mystery of God among us, God that has always been among us. This is a great theme in the Eastern churches during this time where we say, God is with us. That's why I greeted you at the beginning of this program by saying, Christ is born. And your response is, glorify him. We're always mindful of the theological, mystical reality of of an event, such as Christ's birth. So we're concentrating and immersing ourselves in this idea that God has worked through people and through events. But we continue to do that even after the event itself, such as today. Today is the Sunday after Christmas in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And on that Sunday after Christmas, we focus on three individuals, Joseph, Christ's foster father, King David, and James, the cousin or brother of the Lord. And the reason we do is because these three people had special relationships to Christ. We look at their relationships as a way of, as always, as I mentioned, and I can't stress this enough, as a way of immersing ourselves in our own relationship with Christ. In other words, Christ is among us now. God is with us, as we sing over and over again, and resoundingly so on Christmas Eve in the Byzantine services for the vigil. God is with us, but what about that? What do we do with that? We're now in a relationship to him and he to us in a way that was unique, a way that is unprecedented, a way that is more intimate than ever before. So what about this now? Well, we begin to look at people who had relationships with Christ, who were in relationship with him in various ways. And that's why the church puts before our eyes, the church in the East, King David, an ancestor of Christ, James, his cousin or brother, and Joseph, his foster father. Let me read to you some of the liturgical texts for this particular day. It says, Come, let us rejoice in the Lord. Let us proclaim the present mystery by which the partition has been broken and the flaming sword withheld. Now the cherubim shall let us all come to the tree of life. As for me, I am returning to the bliss of paradise from which I had been banished by disobedience. Behold, the image of the Father and his unchangeable eternity has taken the form of a servant without suffering, He has come forth to us from an all-pure virgin, and yet he has remained unchanged. He is true God, as he was before, and he has taken on himself what he had not been, becoming man out of his love for all. Therefore, let us raise our voices in him, singing, O God, born of the virgin, have mercy on us. Now, the last words there, have mercy on us, is something we're going to look at a little bit later in our program today. But right now, we're looking at our relationship with Christ as we see it through people who were in particular relationship with him. In the liturgical text, it says this about these three people. Let us praise David the king, ancestor of God, because from him came forth the branch who is the virgin. From her blossomed the flower, Christ, who summoned Adam and Eve from corruption. He is compassionate towards all. Now, we mentioned David as another throwback to that ancestry of Christ, and as a way of pointing to the fact, almost like it's a proof text, that this Christ was in fact the one that was prophesied. 
the one that would come through the house of David. David was a foreshadowing of Christ. It says, David, the ancestor of God, because from him came forth the branch, who is the virgin, from her blossomed the flower of Christ. So the Virgin Mary and Joseph all stemmed from the lineage of David, from the house of David. And this was predicted that the Messiah would come through that lineage. The next person, Joseph, well, we speak of him in our liturgy. In his advanced years, Joseph clearly saw the prophecies fulfilled. It was truly a strange betrothal, and he received a revelation from the angels who cried out, Glory to God, who sent down peace upon the world. Now, interesting word in that text, a strange betrothal, and Joseph saw the prophecies fulfilled. At first, he was a little puzzled. But eventually, he sees this so-called strange betrothal. Strange, not in a negative way. Strange meaning in a very supernatural way, a mystical way. In Joseph and his relationship to the Virgin Mary, we actually see modeled for us what the ultimate destiny of all earthly marriage is about. Notice their marriage between Joseph and Mary was virginal. Joseph and Mary did not have relations, not physical sexual relations, but they were united as one, as we all will be in heaven. In the Eastern churches, when it comes to marriage, we don't say, till death do you part. We say, till death unite you forever, meaning that a spouse is united to their spouse, although that spouse may have died and gone on to heaven already. The two spouses are united by virtue of being married in Christ. You know, God is a God of the living, not of the dead. So through Christ, the next life and this life are, in a sense, united. So what happens in Christ here also continues on in heaven. But it's not marriage in an exclusive way as we have on earth, where this wife is married only to that particular husband. That is actually a foreshadowing on earth of what will be the marriage in heaven, whereby we are married not just to our spouse, but to the entire bride of Christ. So our marriage in heaven becomes an inclusive, not an exclusive one. And this is what we mean in Eastern churches when we say, death unite you forever, meaning uniting us with the entire bride of Christ, not just with our spouse on earth exclusively, but with the entire bride of Christ. And if that sounds unusual to you, you experience that every time you receive the Eucharist. All of the boundaries fall down. All of the boundaries sort of die away. It's no longer me and my wife, my family, sitting in church in the same pew, in the same place. <laughs> it's us, all of us together, individually partaking of the one body of Christ, but then becoming one body together in Christ, one bride of the bridegroom Christ. When this happens in the Eucharist, it is giving us the closest experience on earth as to what will be in heaven, the kind of marriage we're talking about in heaven. And so in Joseph, and this is why it's very important that the text refers to betrothal, in Joseph we see, in his relationship with Mary, this ultimate destiny already realized on earth between him and Mary. We see that destiny that will be for all who are married on earth. Now, maybe that's a little confusing. Maybe I'll, I'll put it another way. Joseph and Mary, by their virginal marriage, it was a definitely a marriage, but a virginal marriage, is one that foreshadows on earth what marriage will be like in heaven for everyone. And this is why Joseph looks at this marriage and sees it as very special. 
very strange. At first, he doesn't understand it. He doubts. And that's why in the icon, we have a depiction of Joseph actually being tempted by the devil, dressed as a nice old shepherd. We're going to talk more about the relationship to the newborn Savior when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Why do people call St. Nicholas Santa Claus anyway? Well, the people of Holland have always had a special fondness for St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus as they call me. In fact, to this very day, I still arrive to deliver gifts on St. Nicholas Eve, that's December 5th, dressed as a Roman Rite Bishop and riding my white horse, Amerigo. Anyway, in the 16th century, when Dutch settlers came to the New World, they brought their Sinterklaas tradition with them to a place called New Amsterdam. That's modern New York City. And so, when the English-speaking settlers arrived, they began to mispronounce my Dutch name of Sinterklaas, which means, of course, St. Nicholas, and they began to call me Santa Claus. So Santa Claus really means St. Nicholas. But no matter what I'm called by name, my spirit is still the same. I'm filled with the joy that flows from the Christmas proclamation, Christ is born, glorify him. <laughs> You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. And again, I say to you, Christ is born, and you, of course, respond back to me. That's right. You got it. Glorify him. <laughs> One of our common greetings during this time of our Lord's Nativity. I want to remind you about something to mark your calendars, especially if you are in the area of Indiana, Illinois, although anyone's welcome to attend this, but this will be in particular for those in that region. Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. I'll be leading that together with their Tabor Life Institute team that I'm a part of. That's going to be Saturday, February 27th. Saturday, February 27th at St. Nicholas Byzantine Catholic Church in Munster, Indiana. It's a day of recollection for married couples. I'll be giving some of the talks. We'll have other speakers as well. To find out more information, go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Or call our office at 708-645-0762. Certainly mark your calendars. I'm warning you well in advance. February 27th, if you're in the Indiana and Illinois areas especially. Saturday, February 27th in Munster, Indiana, St. Nicholas Byzantine Catholic Church. To find out more information and to register, it's very simple. Just go to taborlife.org. TaborLife.org, or you can call our office 708-645-0762, 708-645-0762, or once again, TaborLife.org.
like Mount Tabor with life, L-A-F-E, taborlife.org for Embracing the Mystery, a day of recollection for married couples. Saturday, February 27th, St. Nicholas Byzantine Catholic Church in Munster, Indiana. We're talking about the people who are related to Jesus Christ on this Sunday after the Nativity. The three people in particular are Joseph, King David, and James, his cousin, or also called brother of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting topic in itself. In the Western Church, this reference to St. James being the brother of the Lord is considered to be a reference to him being a very close relative. The idea being that in the Semitic language and the custom of that era and time, that close relatives were often called brothers. It's probably not perfectly translated to English, but it refers to something like a brother. In other words, a very close relative, or even closer than a relative, but not a blood brother. However, in the East, which is another topic in itself, maybe we'll get to that sometime, the Eastern Church is tended to see the word brother meaning exactly that, that Jesus had a brother, James, but it was not, and this is important to remember, that he was not the son of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. The East is very, very certain about that. But the Eastern churches believe that this James was the son of Joseph, the betrothed, Jesus' foster father, who we just spoke about earlier. Anyway, it's interesting how, once again, we have the two lungs of the church arriving at a similar point, but from different perspectives. But the important thing, the important thing shared by East and West is that Jesus had no brothers and sisters from the Virgin Mary. A little bit more about James from our liturgical text. It says this, Let us all praise the relative of the Lord, James the Apostle who bravely suffered martyrdom as a bishop. By his prayers, O Christ our God, who was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the cave, save all those who extol you. Okay, so James, the apostle, brother, relative of the Lord, bravely suffered martyrdom as a bishop. Okay, here we have now the introduction or the reminder that being in relationship to Christ will also mean martyrdom in some form or another. We cannot escape that. In fact, that is, I believe, a problem among us today in the church, East and West. Maybe it's because modern Western civilization is, well, such a basically comfortable place to live in. We have many modern conveniences. We have churches that are convenient, mass and liturgy schedules that are convenient, etc., etc. And sometimes we forget that our faith does not come without the cross. And that in some form, we're going to be called to be martyrs, either blood martyrs or what we call white martyrs. In other words, where we die to ourself over and over again in many ways, spiritually. And as we die to our false self, to our sin, to our temptations, our unbridled passions, we die to our pride and our propensity to want to react or get even and keep score. We die to all that to rise to our more true selves, or more Christ-like selves. Or at the same time, we may be called to blood martyrdom. Either way, there is no faith, no church without the cross. And putting people like James, the cousin or brother Lord, in front of us at this time, right away at the birth of Jesus, is already a reminder of that fact. So we have Joseph, who foreshadows for us what the ultimate destiny of marriage will be in heaven. We have King David proving that this Christ is the one because it came from his lineage, from David's lineage, and it was the fulfillment of what the prophet said for centuries. Then we have James, the brother or cousin of the Lord, pointing to the fact, reminding us 
that to follow this Christ will mean to take up the cross, will mean martyrdom in some way. You see, what happens in the Eastern churches, and this is seen even in the icons, whenever they depict Christ, especially as a baby, his face is somewhat like a man, and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and the swaddling clothes really look like burial wrappings. In fact, in the icon, he's laying in a manger, which really looks like a tomb or sarcophagus. In the Eastern churches, we're always very quickly ushering our attention forward to the ultimate meaning of this Christ child. And as we ingeniously do in the Eastern churches, we always combine multiple levels of metaphor. So you have Christ as a baby, he's definitely as a baby, but he's also depicted at the same time in a way that foreshadows his full-grown manhood through which he would suffer and die on the cross and then rise. And all that is ingeniously woven in the iconography and also in the liturgical text for these feast days. So it's a characteristic of the Eastern spirituality to always be focusing our attention, kind of ushering us towards the real meaning, the ultimate why behind this event. Yes, it is certainly about a beautiful baby in a manger. That's where it starts, of course. But it's not just about that. We don't want to linger on that too long. Otherwise, Christmas becomes prone to becoming, as it so often is in our culture, just sentiment. Maybe just a little bit more than sentiment. There is sentiment there, yes. But it's not what it's really about. There's something much more meaningful and relevant in this event. It's about Christ the man who does come into this world, yes, in the normal way in terms of being a baby. Also an extraordinary way because it was not through his father Joseph, it was through the Holy Spirit. That's how he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So that part, of course, was very unusual, extraordinary. But he, otherwise, he comes into the world normally as a baby, grows as a child, as a brief reference in the scripture to that, and of course becomes a man. Being a man and what he does as a man is what the purpose of his being a baby is all about. In other words, that's the why behind his nativity. So it's interesting how that's all put together, all integrated together in the art and the liturgical text in the Byzantine church of this feast day and actually all feast days of Christ. I'm going to switch here just a little bit, but it's still a related theme. This whole event of God's incarnation into the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God, this was an act of mercy. And mercy is, of course, the theme now of this year, which just began on December 8th, the year of mercy. And sometimes we wonder what mercy really is. What do we mean by mercy? An interesting definition is found in a beautiful little book called the Magnificat, the Year of Mercy Companion. It's in a little brief essay by Father John Dominic Corbett, or Corbet. He's a Dominican. He says, mercy is the form love takes when it encounters misery. It is, first of all, a form of love because it wants what is good for the one who is loved. Keeping this in mind can keep us from some subtle and corrupting mistakes. For example, St. Thomas Aquinas points out that mercy is a godlike virtue because it involves a strong showing pity to the weak. And from this truth, someone may delight in showing mercy precisely because it allows him to highlight his own superiority on both a spiritual and material level. But this isn't really mercy. It's just pride, dressing up as mercy. It's the sort of pride that St. Francis de Sales said would make the poor hate you for the very bread you give them. Mercy is not condescension. Instead, it's a kind of restoration. 
a restoration. And these are the words from an article in the Magnificat, Year of Mercy Companion, by Father John Dominic Corbet, or Corbett. It's spelled C-O-R-B-E-T-T. Mercy is something that is a very often repeated theme in Eastern spirituality. Mercy is a word we use over and over again in our litanies. We're very, very fond of litanies in Eastern spirituality. Mercy is something we say in a very rapidly repeated way during the Lenten season, during also the exaltation of the cross. In fact, we say it very rapidly, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. The reason we say it rapidly like that, well, there's actually a couple of reasons. It's not being irreverent, it's actually quite the opposite. We're trying to grope for more and more words, like we're trying to almost run after and keep up with the sense of repentance that we know we need to have. You know, whenever you're excited about something, or you're really, really trying to be very meaningful, sometimes you repeat yourself, or you talk very, very fast. Well, that's what we do when we say, Lord, have mercy, oftentimes, in the Eastern churches. We're trying to keep up with a posture that we know we must have before God, and that is a posture of repentance, of begging for his mercy. Because, as Father John said in his article, Mercy is healing, is love in light of misery. And we're conscious of the misery of our lowly state of sinfulness. As Pope Francis himself said, we are like a wretch. We are a wretch before God, begging for his healing and his mercy. We're going to talk a lot more about mercy throughout this year of mercy and how it exists in the Eastern spirituality. For now, I again wish you Christ is born, glorify him. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.